Our story begins in 2014, after the largest financial crisis the world had ever experienced since the crash of 1929. Since then, we've made it our mission to democratize the very best financial intelligence. We broke the story of Bitcoin in 2014 before the general public even knew what it was. We've made award-winning documentaries and series about some of the most important economic and geopolitical events of our time that have amassed millions of views across platforms. And we've spoken with investing legends about trends years before they played out. Here at Real Vision, we don't follow the news, we make the news. This week on social media, we'll be showcasing some of the most important pieces in our history, unlocking some of them for you to watch for free and sharing important takeaways from them that will be useful for you in today's markets. So be sure to tune in. We also have a very special offer just for you guys. To learn more, simply click on the link in the description or scan the QR code. Our stock's setting up for a correction. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Neil Dutta, Head of Economic Research at Renaissance Macro Research. Hi, Neil. Welcome. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for, thanks for being with us and kicking off the week with us. And we had a sort of interesting dynamic here in the U.S. today. Stocks started off this week with a pretty nice-looking rally, and it seems to sort of gain strength as we headed into the close here. So everything's settling, but looks like the Dow up uh, over a percent, the S&P 500 now with gains of almost 1%, and the Nasdaq a little over half a percent. And at the same time, you had sort of Treasury yields um, creeping up a little bit as I think everyone's looking ahead to the inflation data, which I, I know we, we all think is going to be very important. We had Fed, Federal Reserve Governor Michelle Bauman warning she thinks more rate increases will be needed to tame inflation. So the Fed's staying on that hawkish footing, at least verbally. You know, when you look across this, what do you see happening with the U.S. economy? Well, I think the economy uh, continues to sort of defy uh, all expectations. And I think that's really the main story here. Um, there's just a lot of underlying momentum in the economy. I mean, uh, S&P Global, this is the same institution that sort of puts out these uh, monthly PMI data points that everyone sort of um, follows. But uh, they reported that, um, you know, over the last three months, ending in June, real GDP in the U.S., and they run a monthly measure, that's up over 5% at an annual rate, okay? And over the last year, real GDP is up about 3%. This is June of this year to June of last year. So the economy is growing above potential. And I think what's important to note is that despite a aggressive rate tightening campaign that started back in March of 2022, all the Fed has to show for it is an unemployment rate that's unchanged at three and a half percent, stocks basically pressing up to fresh highs, um, the economy growing above trend, and more recently, both the housing market and auto markets reaccelerating. So for uh, someone that came out and said some pain is going to be required to quell inflation, the simple fact is, is that we haven't had much pain. And um, I think the consensus is still going to be, is still flat-footed, and we're going to see continued upward revisions to GDP growth expectations um, between now and the end of the year. Yeah, you're, when you say that the consensus has been flat-footed, it's been a tough one, hasn't it? Because everyone's been sort of saying, well, there is a recession coming, but pushing it out. You know, there was, there was sort of more stimulus 
that countered the, that Fed action, but it's coming. I mean, is a recession coming? Is it just the timeline gets putting, getting pushed out? Or is this economy not anywhere near recession? Uh, I mean, I think, look, I mean, to me, we will have a recession. That's not really particularly um, useful information. The question is when. And, you know, frankly, I think there's a statute of limitations in how long people can sort of keep up this charade of, oh, it's just six months away. I mean, to me, it's sort of ridiculous. And if you're an investor, it's it's better than, it's not any better. It's useless information, frankly. Um, you know, so so in, in my view, I mean, look, I don't think by any traditional framework is the U.S. economy in recession. The time to have been worried about it, frankly, was this time last year when you had um, a huge food and energy shock because of the invasion of Ukraine. You had fiscal tightening. You had the housing market detonating. Uh, you had a very, very aggressive rate tightening campaign. I mean, the Fed was going 75 basis points a meeting, leaking those meetings to the journal before they were ending up doing it. So looking now, think about each of these things in turn. We have a fiscal tailwind now, right? I mean, that's the name of the game. Uh, the government's spending money on infrastructure, on decarbonizing the economy, on building semi, helping build semiconductor facilities. That's going to continue. State and local governments are stepping up to the plate. They're continuing to add jobs at a pretty rapid clip. Um, the housing market, I mean, home builders have been doing reasonably well this year, Maggie. And that's one of the reasons why is because new home sales are up about 25% against last year. Uh, so the housing market is actually working in the economy's favor. Um, and food and energy, um, that shock is dissipating. I mean, food and energy prices have generally been coming down, um, you know, the latest movements in commodity markets notwithstanding. So as I say, I mean, and the Fed is stepping back. I mean, they're not... You know, maybe they'll go once more this year, but they're much closer to the end of something than the start of something. And so I think when you think about each of these things in turn, uh, in my view, the risk of recession has receded dramatically. So if we look at uh, the earnings backdrop, for instance, it's been pretty positive for stocks. Does it seem like based on what you're just describing, those conditions are in place for this to continue or, or does it feel overextended at this point? Well, I'm not a market uh, strategist, although I will sort of try to tie the economics call into, into the markets. Um, you know, when you think about equities, it's really three things, right? It's actual and expected earnings, it's interest rates, and it's the risk premium. And I think what you can say is that actual and expected earnings expectations have generally been doing well. Um, but the the issue I think going forward is that interest rates will probably remain um, will probably remain elevated, and that may take some of the pressure, uh, may take some of the upward momentum out of equities. I think so. Um, yeah, it's that conditions part that I wanted you to speak to because I I know you're not you know you're not going to put a number on a level, but the, because the economy economy has been strong, it looks like the corporations have been benefiting for that. So sort of like maybe let me reframe the question: What kind of health? Our companies in what is there because because that's the it's the the double right we've got the consumer which based on what you're just talking about and that fiscal stimulus coming through in the jobs market sounds pretty strong what about the corporate side of things well i mean we still remain in a very strong nominal growth environment maggie i mean we're talking about six percent nominal growth that's fundamentally a, a situation where most companies that trade on the major ind indices can make money um so I think the issue is the primary reason why stocks are up this year is because the consensus went into the year thinking we were going to have a recession yeah. and we didn't have one. So 
uh, and we're not going to have one this year. So that's what the stock market has been responding to, that pricing out of recession risk. Um, now, if you think about economic and market scenarios, I think you can sort of think, it's sort of four, think about it as four factors, right? You can have a soft landing, you can have a hard landing, you can have an inflationary boom, or you can have a deflationary um, uh, or sort of a, you know, a recession, right? I mean, so I think the way to think about this is, uh, or stagflation rather, the way to think about this, we know for sure that recession risks have come down quite a bit. What I think the markets have done is kind of put a lot of the weight now towards the soft landing view. But that's not the only thing that you should be increasing your probabilities of. I think the odds are higher also of a return of the inflationary boom scenario where the economy is still growing and inflation remains sticky. And that is somewhat more challenging, I think, for stocks. It's unambiguously bad for bonds, but um, you know, obviously a soft landing would be great for stocks and inflationary boom less so. And I think the markets are kind of wrestling with that right now. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, my colleague Andreas just put out, he's been thinking about this as well uh, and that that influence of inflation. And he just put out his latest um, installment of some research he does. And he's looking at some signals that have him a little bit concerned. Let's have a listen to that and then we'll talk on the other side. So ultimately, what I'm trying to say here is that on the income side, taxes are declining. Corporate profits do not look um, to uh, be uh, on an increasing path here either. So wages need to solve the equation, so to speak, for the gross domestic income. So without a clear pickup in wages, say over the next two, three quarters, uh, then we will likely see a decline in the gross domestic income overall. Uh, and that leads me to say that it's too early to take that recession scenario off the table. And you can see that full uh, installment of Seno Signals on our platform, on the website. And if you're not a member, just scan the QR code and jump on a trial. We have some great specials on at the moment. Um, so Neil, we did get that jobs number on Friday. I feel like there was a lot going on on Friday. And so it didn't come in overly hot. So people were like, okay, you know, and, and kind of moved off. But Andreas really, I think, thinking about that wage part of it, and we always think about that with inflation, because even if wages are, the, the labor market's really tight, if inflation's running, you know, more than that, and you can't compensate, then it kind of changes the scenario. I know you did a, a, a research piece and a dive into the labor market. What, what are we looking at there? And what is the outlook for wages? Can they keep up with inflation, especially if we see inflation swing up again? Well, right now, the main story is that real incomes are accelerating. And that's primarily because wages are solid and headline inflation is coming down, whether that's because of shelter, whether that's because of used cars, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, food prices, grocery store prices. But real incomes are picking up and that's supporting consumer spending. Um, so that's the issue right now, specifically with the... Uh, with the labor market data that was released last week, you know, what stood out to me was the fact that goods producing or cyclical industry, so this is like mining, logging, construction, manufacturing. If you look at wage growth in those industries over the last three months, it's up over six and a half percent at an annual rate. That is a very rapid pace of growth for average hourly earnings. And these are cyclical industries. What do we know about these cyclical industries? We were just in a freight recession. So if, if you had a freight recession and goods producing industries are still generating 6.5% wage growth, 
what's going to happen on the other end of this? I mean, we already started to have started to see rail car loadings bottoming out. There's probably going to be some positive impulse to the economy from inventories. I think the primary risk that people need to be positioning for is the risk that the Fed declares victory too soon. That, in my mind, is the main risk. The Fed's patting itself on the back. We solved inflation just as it begins to turn up again. Um, the reality is the economy is growing above trend. That means that actual resources are being taken out. And last I checked, as that happens, consumers and companies bid up wages and prices. I mean, that's how it goes. So, um, you know, unless you think that there's some kind of productivity miracle out there, uh, it's really hard to see the inflation issue being uh, resolved. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So it's interesting because we we started to see in the market last week, bonds, we started to see yields rise as more and more people were talking about, well, I think inflation is going to swing back. Maybe there's no landing. You know, there was this conversation about that. And then you saw it kind of roll over at the end of the week. So do you think the bond market's position for the idea that the Fed is going to declare victory too early? I mean, if that's the case, are bond yields vulnerable here or the bond market vulnerable? Uh, I think I think it is. I think the long end is vulnerable um, for sure. And the reason I do is because if the Fed's uh, going to take a step back, then the, the markets will do the tightening for them. Right. And I think that's part of what's going on here. And, you know, look, I mean, I think the bigger story here is that the Fed seems to be anchoring to very much a post financial crisis uh, model of the world. And I'm not so sure that's the right thing to do. I mean, as an example, they continue to believe that neutral or longer run interest rates are two and a half percent. That's what they think is sort of the break even for the economy. They've been having that estimate in their summary of economic projections for years now. But why should that be the case? Um, you know, if you think about the period following the financial crisis, you had a lot of people saving up for retirement. You had fiscal austerity. You had, um, uh, you know, um, years of widening in income inequality. And if you think about each of these things now, a lot of those people that were saving for retirement have since retired and now they're dissaving. That stimulates consumer spending. Um, we've seen some deglobalizing of the economy. That's reducing income inequality within developed economies. And that's supporting consumption at the lower end. Remember that real wage growth for the lower income consumer has been very robust throughout the pandemic or you know, since 2021. Um, and fiscal austerity, I mean, <laughs> there's no such thing, right? I mean, we're decarbonizing the economy, uh, semiconductors, infrastructure. The fact that they're drawing down all our munitions and the Ukraine, uh, the effort to defend Ukraine, that's going to lead to more defense spending at some point. Think of that as another infrastructure package. So why should neutral interest rates be 2.5%? My guess is that if there's a risk there, it's that it's substantially higher. And that means that however restrictive the Fed thinks it is, it's not as restrictive as they think, which means their policy needs to be, policy rate needs to be higher to compensate for that fact. So um, I think that's really the main issue. And, you know, you saw it today with an uh, interesting piece, uh, interview with uh, New York Pre President John Williams in the New York Times, basically acting as if nothing's really changed. And 
That to me is a big risk because I think things have changed. And um, you know, my sense is that neutral is higher than the Fed thinks, which means they're not as restrictive as they believe. Well, that is a massive change in psychology, if that's the case. I mean, you know, we have been in this low interest rate environment for so long. And whatever the reason, the idea that that the natural rate of unemployment, or not natural, but the 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 new neutral rate of unemployment would be much higher. That doesn't seem to be that 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 that, that has huge implications, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I'm talking about the neutral rate of interest, yes, but the, yeah, the, the neutral rate of interest being higher means that the Fed has to keep rates higher in order to, to restrict growth in the economy. So, the, I mean, I guess that's the other thing, right? I mean, the, the Fed continues to talk about how financial conditions are restrictive. I mean, they almost say it like as if it's like a given. I mean, just because rates are where they are, financial conditions are restrictive. That's not how it, to me, that's not really how it works. I mean, how restrictive can things be when the Fed staff went from pricing, went from telling you that we're gonna, there was going to be a recession in the outlook. Now they no longer believe that. So how restrictive is yeah. that really? How yeah. restrictive can things be if the unemployment rate is no, no different now than it was a year ago? How restrictive can things be with the stock market at 45, 4,600? I mean, so, um, you know, I mean, to me, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. There's no, to me, there's no real sign that things are restrictive. Why do you think the Fed, why, what, why would you think that they're ready to pivot though? I mean, as you say, they say they're data dependent. They make an effort of trying to sound like they're hawkish. Uh, Jay Powell went to great pains to paint himself as the next Paul Volcker, you know, who vanquished inflation. He starts off every meeting saying inflation hurts, you know, members of the society that can least afford it. And it's their job. Price stability is their mission, is one of their dual mandates. Why would they stop hiking? Why would they, why would they quit too soon? Well, I think the Fed continues to put a lot of currency, intellectual currency, behind this long and variable lag idea. Mm. Okay? I mean, so this idea that they've done a lot already, therefore, any day now, it's going to show up. But again, in my mind, the long and variable lag argument actually works in a way that they are not thinking, which is they should be continuing to keep their feet on the brakes as a result. Because if it's been nearly 18 months already, wouldn't you expect to see the most credit sensitive areas of the economy being the ones that slow down. In fact, that's not what's happening. What's happening right now is that the goods producing side of the economy is speeding up, housing and home prices are speeding up and auto sales are speeding up. That's exactly the opposite of what you think would happen. So to me, long and variable lags, um, you know, frankly, as a concept might be outliving its usefulness, but the, um, the broader story is that it's not really working the way you would think. And in my, I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on here, but I do think one is just that if there are long and variable lags of monetary policy, there are long and variable lags of fiscal policy as well. And let's just be, I mean, the government did a lot of things during the pandemic, right? I mean, checks, top up the unemployment insurance, state and local government, um, you know, uh, money, um, all sorts of paycheck protection program, all sorts of things. And, you know, in some cases, some of that money is still being spent. Uh, and so perhaps there are long and variable lags with fiscal policy as well. And that's blunting a lot of the effects of monetary policy. Yeah, that's the tricky thing, isn't it? Because as unprecedented, you know, they're trying to, the Fed's trying to exit an unprecedented period where they, you know, pulled out all these new measures and they really weren't sure how to get out of them, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis. But right now, because of the pandemic, we're coming out of unprecedented fiscal measures. You know, the amount of money that was thrown at that problem 
And, and it doesn't seem like anybody really understands these lags. So how on earth can the Fed navigate that and try to try to figure out, you know, the best case scenario, they want them to offset each other in a gradual, gentle way, right? Yeah, but again, I mean, to me, it's, a, I mean, part of it just starts with observing the data, right? I mean, if, so if you, I mean, these are interest rate sensitive sectors that are the ones that are doing the best so far this year. What does that tell you about, Long and I mean, part of this is that they communicate so often with the markets that these these I mean, monetary policy works through expectations management, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's and that's how it works in my view, right? So that's why the effects I think are a lot shorter than people think, and you see it now. I mean, you know, for a company, they had been preparing for a recession since the spring of 2022. Okay, it never came. So now a lot of these companies are probably throwing their hands up in the air and thinking, well, I mean, I, there's no time like the present. I might as well just go about that project I was planning on doing because this recession hasn't happened. Um, and so, you know, to me, one of the ways you get recession is through some kind of element of surprise, right? Companies think things will be okay and then they're not okay. And that forces some kind of clearing out of inventory, your CapEx plans, your hiring plans. But what if companies have been planning for that for eight months and it never happened? Now the risks build in the other direction where they have to play catch up. And, uh, and that could become a very uh, problematic thing for the Fed. In fact, I think that's what is happening because if you look at measures of business confidence, they're going up. If you look at how people are thinking about the risk of recession, it's going down. Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen with precautionary savings rate if people are less concerned about recession? Presumably they'd go down, which means consumer spending presumably will go up. So again, I mean, <laughs> The consensus thinks that GDP is going to be like maybe less than 1% in Q3, potentially negative in Q4. There is just zero evidence that that's going to happen. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So uh, it seems to me that uh, if the Fed's watching this all, what better place to try to reset expectations than Jackson Hole, right? Yeah, I mean, you would think so. I mean, the Jackson Hole, I mean, that that's sort of, sometimes it's very significant, sometimes it's not. Yeah, right? exactly. So sometimes it, it, kind of, it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, what I would say is that in his latest public commentary, I would just say that, you know, it sounded to me like Powell was more dovish at his last uh, um press conference. And the, I mean, and the way I, I, I'm thinking about that is just sort of trying to gauge their reaction function. What, what, what's clear to me is that a downside inflation surprise will push the Fed away from hiking more than an upside employment surprise will push them towards hiking. So there's a bit of an asymmetry there. I mean, they're data dependent, but they care a lot more about the inflation numbers right now than anything else. So, and, so that's going to make me make this week's data very important then. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's also important to remember that there's a lot of disinflation in the pipeline right now, at least through the fall, right? When you Because you have used car prices coming down, you have shelter inflation coming down. Um, so there's a lot of reason to think that inflation will, will be weaker for the next few months. Um, the issue is how sustainable is that in an environment where the unemployment rate is so low and wages are growing where they're? Because ultimately, all that means is that you're just shifting things around. Maybe people spend less on used cars, but then they have more money to go spend somewhere else. And over time, that drives up the prices for those, those other goods and services. So I think that's kind of the thing that the Fed needs to be cognizant of, is that 
you know, really it comes down to something a lot more basic, I think, for the Fed is that um, they started off this um, tightening campaign by basically viewing inflation through the prism of the labor markets. And now they seem to be stepping a little bit away from that, which may be one reason why the markets are so happy. <laughs> but, um, you know, ultimately, I think you either believe the labor markets are a conduit for inflationary pressure or not. And, um, and I think at some level, labor markets matter. I mean, you know, whether it's the, you know, Teamsters making a deal with UPS or UAW making a deal with the auto manufacturers. I mean, the reason these companies are agreeing to these deals with the unions is probably because they think they can push those prices onto their end consumer. Absolutely. I was just thinking about that when you're talking before about the um, small revival. I mean, you know, to be clear, unionization is nothing like it was at its peak in this country. But you have seen these contracts coming back and you have seen areas unionized that were not unionized before. Um, and they're I'm sure that I'm sure the companies think they can pass it along. They're also afraid of not having workers because we have labor shortages in some areas. It's so a G. Blackburn. Dynamic, Maggie. I mean, if you think about what we had in the 2010s was basically structural, you could say structural labor surpluses. Companies can get workers whenever they want them. We don't have that now. It's a completely new dynamic in the careers for most of us. And so um, that is something that we have to contend with. And ultimately, I think it's more inflationary than not. G. Blackburn asking a really good question. Isn't AI the productivity and inflation miracle? How are you thinking about that? You know, um, Robert Solo once talked about how productivity is everywhere except for in the economic data. And I think one of the reasons, um, and I think one of the reasons for that is it takes time for people to um, sort of capture all the knowledge that's involved with these new technologies. So if you think about the desktop computer, I mean, that was probably something that made its way into corporate America sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, but it wasn't really until the late 1990s that productivity took off. Uh, so there's a bit of a lag there. Um, but I think in the short run, the AI story is inflationary because what are tech companies doing? They're going out and hiring lots of AI software engineers and so forth. And that's, you know, after being a headwind for the labor market in 2022 with, you know, sort of, we saw layoff announcements surging in the tech sector. Layoff announcements in tech have since come down quite a bit. And one of the reasons why is because companies are investing a lot in AI and in hiring uh, for AI uh, engineers, uh, CapEx related to AI. What does that mean? That's inflationary. <laughs> They're spending more money. Uh, so in the short run, it's inflationary. I think the productivity payoff is gonna come a lot later. And that's, that's important, right? The timing of that is important when you're talking about it sitting on all these other pressures on inflation. Um, I mentioned, by the way, Jackson Hole before. I know most of you know, but for those who don't, um, the central bankers uh, get together in Jackson Hole for a sort of symposium. So, somebody in the chat just said, why do they have to have a boondoggle <laughs> every every year in Jackson Hole? Um, I'll, I'll let everyone make their own opinion about that. But it often can be a wonky symposium about sort of central bank theory and very, very in the weeds. But every once in a while, when they want to float a trial balloon or they want to rein in expectations, they'll make news there. So that's why everyone follows it. Um, and it was G. Blackburn with that same. You're on fire today, G. Uh, so when when we look across, Neil, um, because we're we're almost out of time, but when we look across the landscape, what do you 
what's going to be most important for you? It sounds like you're really keyed in on the labor market. Um, what are you going to be watching for signs that 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 we're going to have this inf- pick up in inflation? The economy is going to stay stronger, and the Fed's basically, you know, missed the mark. It is behind and is going to declare victory too early. What's going to kind of reinforce that theory for you? Well, so I think what's happened so far this year is that you've had relatively robust economic activity if you measure it based on, you know, GDP, so output. And hours worked have not been as strong. And that's been particularly pronounced over the last few months. So what that shows up as is basically a very strong upward movement in productivity. I don't think that's sustainable. So you either think output's going to slow or hours worked will go up. And my sense is that hours worked will go up. It'll be some combination of more people working, them working longer. Um, And I think between now and the end of the year, that's gonna show up potentially in two ways. The first is you'll just start to see more robust uh, jobs growth. I mean, we were kind of settling into like 185, but I wouldn't be surprised to see like going back up to like 225, 250 on on monthly payrolls. I mean, at the end of the day, monthly jobs are a function of two things, the rate of hiring, the rate of firing. The rate of hiring is stabilizing, maybe ticking up a little bit. And we know the rate of firing is down based on layoff announcements, based on initial claims, as an example. And I also think, second, you have to hold open the possibility that the unemployment rate drops again. Um, You know, we've been kind of settling in at three and a half percent. I wouldn't be, I mean, you can't say that you could go down another tenth or two. I mean, the economy is growing well above potential. If the economy is growing above potential, then the unemployment rate uh, is going to have more downward pressure on it. And, um, and I think that's going to challenge a lot of the Fed's underlying um, narratives. I mean, the Fed is going to fight the economy doing better, inflation potentially turning up scenario, tooth and nail, okay? Because they have a model of the world that says things should be slowing down. And uh, it's going to be, I mean, you know, it's like anyone else in this business. I mean, it's, you know, you should never fall in love with your forecast, but a lot of them, you know, I mean, the Fed is doing that. And I think that that could be a big problem. What, do you have any, any forecast for uh, the 10 year based on this? I mean, I wouldn't like, be, how, I wouldn't be how surprised. How could it go? I mean, it could go up to four and a half percent. You're not worried about five or something like that. Though. I mean, you, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, think it happen, I think right, it's but... going to go higher. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 initially in the beginning of the year, I said it could go up to four. We've kind of gone through that, but look, I mean, the issue for the ten year is like the the more the Fed um, tries to um, not follow through with additional hikes, the more likely it is that the tightening happens through the back end of the curve. Yeah, we used to call them bond vigilantes back in the day, right? And they'll do it before the Fed, right? They'll sniff this out before the Fed. They will. They will message to the Fed that they are behind. Yeah, I mean, right now, I think what you what you have the markets doing is basically pricing in some some sort of inflationary boom like scenario, right? Where um, where the economy is doing better, um, inflation might be stickier, and that's one of the reasons why the stock market, um, you know, the weakness we've seen over the last week hasn't been more pronounced because ultimately, like stocks can still kind of work in that environment. It's bonds that can't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so 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 the issue I think going forward is, does that mean that the adjustment has to be even more? Does the Fed have to do even more than what they think um, to kind of get the economy to grow in a below potential state? I mean, that to me is the issue. Um, 
you need a period of below potential growth to quell inflation and get it back to their target. Uh, and we just haven't had that yet. Neil, fantastic stuff. You gave us so much to think about um, and, a, and a good time frame uh, to view the next batch of inflation numbers and employment numbers um, as we sort of march our way to that Fed meeting in September. Thanks so much. It was great to have you on. Thanks, Maggie. Hope to do it again soon. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you. Great questions today. We'll be back same time tomorrow with Tony Greer. So join us then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 